Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. As we begin to wind down Season 2 of Open Trailer Podcast, this time out we'll get back to basics and straight up talk to a Hall of Famer, Beechridge Hall of Famer, May Motorsport Hall of Famer, a gentleman whose race cars won five track championships in a row during an extremely competitive time at the racetrack. Many who have only been around the last couple of years know him as the tech guy, but he has uh, quite the story. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with Dick Fowler. Now, Dick is known for what he accomplished on one side of the racetrack, but do you know his Beach Ridge story starts on the other side of the racetrack? We'll dig into that. Dick, he also grew up a farmer, became one. We spend, well, more than a little time on that. I, I realized listening back to the episode that I did ask a lot of questions about farming, but I'm fascinated about farming. What can I say? Some of uh, Dickie's driving days... I think we actually talked about farming more than Dickie's driving days because they certainly, uh, well, the farming days lasted longer, a lot longer, and you'll find out why. Before we move forward, though, I want to thank everyone for the support the last few weeks as we uh, did a detour uh, documenting Beach Ridge, the next chapter, where we talked to all the champions and some of the different key players who uh, have had a hand in the racetrack. And I'm really glad that we got those stories out and the people who who accomplished in 2021 who maybe didn't get a chance to revel in, in their moment finally get a chance to say their piece and um, put some of that stuff to bed as we all move forward. This podcast is primarily about things that happened 25, 30, 40 years ago, but we're experiencing a big piece of what will go down as main racing history right now. Speaking of history, please contribute and allow us to continue to tell the stories and uh, and carry the message. MainVintageRace.org. That's where you can subscribe to Main Vintage Race Car Association. For less than $2 a month, you can help keep the organization going. We obviously are in Maine, and even though we didn't have the harshest winter, our, uh, our mobile museum is not stored indoors and as a result of the main winter is going to need some work. I mean, that's just part of where your funds go. We also put on the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame, uh, Summerfest at Wiscasset Speedway that's coming up in August, just a ton of things. If you're just learning about the organization or you're just hearing about it for the first time and would like to learn, MainVintageRace.org. Ken Minot of Wiscasset Speedway has done a phenomenal job with continuing to update the website. If you want to help specifically this podcast, become a member of the Patreon Army. Uh, just uh, contribute to Patreon.com slash Podcast. Greatly appreciate your support. Right up front, I'll tell you this is not a year-round podcast, and I'm fortunate to not have all the time in the world to do this podcast. I know that sounds kind of weird. Uh, certain things need to live in certain spaces, so Open Trailer Podcast will go on hiatus, uh, likely in a few weeks. But again, thank you for your support the first couple of seasons. Uh, your contributions will go towards what we do in Season 3. Let's get to it. It's Dickie Fowler on Open Trailer Podcast. Open Trailer Podcast. 
lived about seven or eight different lives. Now, yours have been, I would say, all behind the scenes. Now, to a race fan, a casual race fan, likely so. Uh, but between being a Hall of Fame car owner, uh, winning some big races, having some very successful sons, being a pillar of the community of Scarborough, which we'll get into Scarborough and what that's like these days, um, and and being you know head of tech at Beechridge, uh, a lot of the stuff you did was behind pit wall, right? So you weren't necessarily up in front, right? Ironically, your Beechridge story starts with you being up front. What was your first job at Beechridge? Well, 1966, I was fairly young. I mean, nine years old then. Mm. I was uh, selling programs in the grandstands. My, yeah. na- my neighbor was uh, Bob Tatro, and he had two sons, Mark and Mike, and I was real close with Mark. And uh, he sold programs and whatever. And we'd sell programs. We ran our programs. We'd go sell popcorn. I, I got to be good friends with them. They'd pick me up, drop me off at 12 o'clock at night. We'd have to – the old bar was underneath the grandstands over there by the one turn. <laughs> and we'd sit out there till everybody got done because Bob had the, the photo uh, booth too. And people after races would line up and buy pitches and mm-hmm. all that stuff and go out on the track and check the winners and get them signed. So – your first time at the racetrack, were you a fan before you stole programs? No, they 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 brought me to Beechridge for the first time. Really? Yeah. And do you remember what that was like? Oh, I geez, I thought I hit the lottery. I mean, just mm. love race. I mean, love fast cars, and even at nine, ten years old, you know, I mm. I just loved I just loved it. I just couldn't get enough of it, really. Now, um, something that I just learned in our pre-interview, I, I associate you and your family with Scarborough being there for decades, and you have been, but you're not originally from Scarborough. No, I originally I was born in Portland. I uh, lived in Westbrook on Duck Pond Road, very close with Bob Bildo. We were just young, young, young kids. Mm. Went to school together, same grade and everything. Rick was there too, and my brother Rick. We hung out together. We built wooden go-karts and we'd push it down Duck Pond Road and wipeouts and so we hung around quite a bit. You know, Bub and I were close when we were kids growing up. So I'm going to jump ahead here just because we're of the moment. How come Bub never drove for you? Well, Bub was his own deal, you know what I mean? He had he owned his own cars, drove his own cars and I don't know I don't know, I never really Never even thought about that. You know, it ne- never comes to my mind. Well, think of this. Your number, your major number back then was 33. Right. Right. But you have the 88. He's 87 for yeah. a lot of the yeah. years. Yeah, so just, just think of that. I mean, you could have been the 88 and the 87. You could yeah. have team there cars. Yeah, right. I know. What. But I think back then I had my hands full anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I had a couple of young boys growing up and uh, they were in the go-karts. We went all over the states to race with them. and. Mm. Uh, so let's get back to Westbrook, though. Uh, can you hear the racetrack from, from your house? From Westbrook, no. No. But from Scarborough, I could. And when did you move to Scarborough? Uh, 1966. So you were nine. I was nine. So yeah. this is all right around the same time. All around the same time, yeah, that I got, you know, go to the races with the Tatros. How did you end up in Scarborough? Uh, my parents, uh, we they, they rented a house in Westbrook, and... Then we moved to Scarborough because I had five sisters and two brothers, and we uh, helped a 
friend of my father's on the farm, which was Cothard Brothers back then. We'd come out and work. We started work at a young age. So 10-year-old Dick Fowler is not only selling programs at Beechridge, and anybody who has been to Beechridge, it's... The 1966 grandstands are pretty much what was there or what is still there today as of this recording in 2022, those steep wooden grandstands. Yep, right. You must have had quads of steel. Well, I was young back then. Nothing really bothered me <laughs> yeah. like it does today. But How much money would you make a year? Uh, not not yourself personally, but I mean, how much product were you moving when it comes to programs? Jeez, we'd probably sell all the, I don't know if they had you know, two or three hundred. 500. I can't remember what the number was because I was kind of too young then to mm. see all the programs in the trunk that we had to go out and sell. We'd take, you know, 15 or 20 at a time that we could lug up the stairs and stuff. And back when I started, they were 25 cents. It was easy. When they went to 35 cents, you had to wait a little longer to make the change. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about Someone that. Someone gives you a dollar bill or five. Well, I got to figure out what that is to get back. Why didn't they just double it to 50? Well... I know. It went to 35, then it went to 50. It did. Did but, people freak out when it went to 35? Oh, I don't think so. I was too young to no. even think what they thought. You know what I mean? Right. But a lot of people bought the, bought the programs. It was a good it was a good deal, and I got hundreds of them. Yeah. You know, in boxes and stuff that I'm going to give to somebody, uh, the main vintage racing, or somebody that that will continue on and keep them. Who was the first person that turned your head? Well, I was in I was in a great opportunity to, with the people that the drivers that I had back then when I was sitting in the grandstands. You had Homer Drew, Jeff Stevens. Dick McCabe, Dick Walsh at home, Dick Garrett, Bob Babb, Bob and Larry Tangway, which Bob was the first one that gave me a flag when I was about 10 years old, signed. Bab? I mean, Bob, 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 Bob Tangway. Bob Tangway, okay. Yeah, Bob Tangway. Bob and Larry, they both, one ran C-class, a pink number four, and Larry ran a V8 in the mm. B-class. They were, they were both nice guys, and like I say, Bob gave me the first flag, and Roger Hanscom, Dale Avery, all them guys, Pete Peterson, and Ralph Cusack. Ralph was probably my favorite because he always seemed to come from the back. Him, a homer, a Dick Walsh, seemed to come from the back and put on a good show. So I've heard that about those drivers so many times. One thing I've never thought to ask was what was it like as a race fan to watch that race? Would you pay attention to who's starting up in front and watch the battle up front, or would your eyes originally uh, be fixated on the guys coming from the back? Yeah, it's usually coming from the back. I mean, the big names were usually back there because they had points back then. They lined up by points and stuff. So you'd watch the names more than the race itself. Yeah, yeah, who it was, you know. And I grew up where I lived, too. Dave Gutter, he lived uh, right downstairs. It It was a duplex. We were on one floor, and the Gutters were on another floor. So Dave was really involved with racing. So he'd take me to the races down to Arundel or we'd go to Lee or something like that. I know I'd follow along with him. You know, I was only a young fella then, but uh, I kind of, he kind of got me really kept me going in racing and stuff. And he drove my first C-class car back then, which was 1972. My brother and Steve Sullivan, which helps Kelly Moore now, he, uh, we built it with Dan Wolf. Yeah. Up in Dan's barn, up his father's barn. You know, he had a company back then, and we had a place to work on it. But that's where it all started as far as building it. And Where'd you guys find that car? Ah, uh, Jesus, I can't remember on that one. No, I don't remember where we found that 57 Chevy, but it was maroon with a white top. I remember seeing it in the guy's yard, but I don't remember where we got it. 
And to, to have that today, like I when I first started my drive, for, when I bought the car off Mike Johnson, my first uh, C-Class car, mm. it was a 67, Chev- 67 Chevelle, had a big block in it, 396. It had the baffled, the, the front hood. I mean, it was a beautiful car, blue with a white top and you know what that car would be worth today i don't know but a lot of guys have tore up some good stuff just to make race cars from 57 chevys to chevelles and and everybody kicks themselves oh yeah as a result i do on that 67 that 67 that chevelle that era of chevelle 67 to 71 some of my favorite vehicles yeah i think if i if i had a play i currently don't have a place where i could put a vehicle like that but yep. I want one. <laughs> yeah, I figured I always wanted a '57 because that was the year I was born, and I loved mm. them cars and a lot of '57s. That was my first one that we built for Dave Gutter. That was a '57 Chevy. How come you're not into classic cars? Um, it seems to me that you would have, I don't know, a few. Yeah, I buy a few things that I don't keep them long enough. I guess I might drive them for a little while. I had a Roush Mustang I had, but I didn't dare to drive it anywhere because. You park it somewhere, someone hits the door or something. It's just because when I got out of farming, I uh, started uh, going to Car Rocks. It was a good friend of mine, Pete McConnell. You know, he learned me the trade probably 15 years ago. And I go two or three times a week now, still do it. It's kind of a retirement job yeah. from back when I was younger and, th- and farmed over 30 years, my wife and I. Uh, I love it. I love going to the auctions. I went there today. And, you know, last week I bought six cars and it's just. I love doing it. I love, I love being around vehicles. How similar is a race? Uh, I assume it's an auction, right? Yeah, you go to the it's US an auction. auction. Yep. So, how similar is an auction than to watch your car compete for a win at Beach Ridge or any of the tracks that you guys were successful at? Well, I don't know if it's in the same category, but when I go to the auctions, I tell everybody if I, you know, I go Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Mm. It's just like going to open up come down the stairs in the morning at christmas time and open up new gifts yeah it's just all kinds of stuff there you know it could be campers it could be boats it could be snowmobiles well, what i mean by in the competition sense of things do you compete against other people like yourself who want that same vehicle oh yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah you know there's probably 300 people there on yeah. a good day at an auction so I mean, you're where beating I go in new hampshire you're competing against them yeah you know if you bid it's like on barrett jass and you bid Three thousand dollars. Someone might come in and end up buying it for seven thousand. Hmm. But I, I love it. I just really like it. I, I've done been very successful with it. My Mike, my boy Mikey helps me. He's there every day with me. You know, hmm. we work five days a week on it, and uh, he enjoys it. And we can make a living out of it. That's awesome. Let's get back to the farming because you said you uh, when you were done with farming, and we kind of touched on it a little bit during your. Um, you know, your program selling days. So you'd sell programs at the racetrack and you just moved to Scarborough. Your dad, your dad was a farmer as well. Was yep. he the same type of farmer that you became? Yep. Yep. Which yeah, he, was? He, he worked on the same farm for the, you know, for the Cothards hmm. and that's how I got involved. But uh, do you like farming? Oh, I loved it. I really loved it. Yeah. See, uh, a it, lot of kids would be like, I don't want to well, do that. Well, I know, but I kind of drove the tractors most of the time. I was a kind of a little bit of spoiled because <laughs> my father worked for the guy, his friend. And, yeah. So I got to drive the tractors 90% of the time. Right. You know, and we, we raised a lot of stuff. You know, my wife and I farmed. When we were at, at, at the Falls, we farmed 100 acres. You know, probably 30 acres of sweet corn and all mixed vegetables. Potatoes, probably 10 acres. What's uh, the key to growing a great potato? Uh, sun and water. And keep the bugs off them. 
How do you keep bugs off potatoes? Well, you got to use you got to use a little bit of chemical. Yeah. You know, it's today's day. I don't know because I've been out of the farming business for probably ten years, but everything was getting a little touchy and pushy, and yeah. they're taking everything off the market, and so I don't know. It'd, it'd be tough. I'm sorry. I know this is a racing podcast, but I'm I'm incredibly interested in the whole farming thing. Yeah. So you're a farmer. What do you do with your crops? Do you take them to a supermarket? How do you get? How, what's the next step after yeah. you grow them? After we grow them, we have we had a great roadside market right there on Pleasant Hill Road in Scarborough, which was Pleasant Hill Gardens, which I shopped at. But yeah. I mean, did you do anything besides that? No, we no. went. We also went to a farmers market in Portland. We were member there for ah yes, I've never seen you there yeah, too. Yeah. About thirty years, Monument Square, Darren Oaks on Saturday, Monument Square on Wednesdays. And so still uh, and still have the farm stand. We, it was a very busy, busy time of my life right there. How many hours are you working on the farm? Is it everything they say from sun up to sundown? Yeah, more or less it is. And you know, then you try to stick racing in there Saturday nights yeah. and go on the go karts Friday night with the kids and any other sports they're in. But when does racing and the idea of owning or driving a race car come into mind? You mentioned that first car that you built with Dan up in Dan, Dan Wolf shop yeah. with um, the guy from Kelly Morris crew, Steve Stevens. Yeah, Steve Sullivan. So, yeah, Sullivan, Steve excuse Sullivan. me. Yeah. Steve yeah. Stevens and Billy Idol, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, but you guys, so you get that little taste and bringing that car to the racetrack. What was it like bringing your car to a place that you have uh, been at for so long? you know that particular time oh i just i just loved it i you know we all had a white racing shirts back then with beatridge on them and stuff we had a little why would you wear white to a dirt track i that's what they that's what they sold back then okay at, at the speedway it was, yeah you know, you get them all lettered up and stuff you had the uh tag on the side of the shirt and i wish i kept that shirt but i don't know what happened my brother had one i had one and mm. it was uh, you see a lot of the pictures you'll see them they got them white shirts on Maybe it's because you, you know you can see them better in the infield or whatever. Oh yeah, when the dirt's flying around, dirt's flying around. But so, were you the driver of that car, or did you have somebody drive it for you? No, that year in '72, Dave Gutter drove it. You know, Dan, like I said, Dan Wolf helped build it. My brother and Steve. And uh, why we, didn't you want to drive? Oh, I was too young. I was just a freshman in high school then. Okay. You know, and I don't think back then, you know, I just didn't have the ability. Yeah. I didn't really, I never really got interested in that. Even as, as as the years went on, I just really was never interested in, in driving because I started a farm business at a young age. And Wendy and I got married, uh, you know, 42 years ago. So I don't know when that would put it, but uh, when I come out of high school, that'd I think be 1982. 1982. No, 1980 for 42 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so we got married then, and I was just starting that business, so everything kind of happened fast. Mm. I didn't really want to be a, a driver, and you know maybe get hurt because I had you know I had to I had to start a family and and run a farm. So and you're on your own insurance. Yeah, I'm on my own insurance. That's Does that right, that exactly. play into it? Yes, everything did. Everything. If I got hurt, you know what would happen with my family and stuff. So and I really liked being a car owner. I really did. I enjoyed it. So what was the split black back then? If I drove for you, what would I get to keep as your driver? You never asked for nothing. The dri- my, none of my drivers ever asked for a penny. And I had the, I had good ones. Mike mm. Johnson, uh, Mike Mayetta. Mayetta drove for you? Yeah, I drove two years after uh, Mike, Mike Johnson retired in 1995. He won three champions in a row, and he won out a champion in mm. 95. And Jason was just starting out in sports series, so mm. and I had sports series and uh, the pro stock. So Mike drove at ninety six and ninety seven, and won two championships. 
So wow. that year we won. I actually, as Cairo, and I won five in a row that in that span. Yeah, and, I uh, wasn't. I wasn't aware that you were the owner of them. I always thought yeah. he had his own family team. No, two years, ninety six, ninety seven. He drove the thirty three. Wow. Polar Beverage. We had a great sponsor. I mean, probably one of the biggest sponsors that that, that came locally. I was going to ask you. That's that was number three. Oddly, number three on my list of the iconic thirty three. Um, I, I'll tell you, power of advertising. When I started shopping as an adult, uh, you know, I was paying the bills. Right. I went right for the Polar product, yeah. and it was yeah. it was directly because of what I saw on your race car. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one. Yeah. So how did that whole Polar deal come together? Well, my neighbor was uh, Robbie Moulton. He lived across the street. And uh, he was on my on my team, and that was his brother-in-law that did the marketing for Polar. So he kind of talked him into that, and uh, here comes Polar. And we had him for uh, probably had him for six probably six good years, and they were you know big money back then. You know, it was, yeah. it was quite a bit of money. You know, I'm, do you I'm, mind sharing with? I yeah, I mean it was big money back then. It was twenty five thousand dollars for a short track for Saturday night. Uh, Beatridge. Beatridge Pro wow. Stock. Yeah, and that's big big money back then. I'd take twenty five grand today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, I don't think those numbers are out there today. Yeah. You know, but I've been fortunate to have great sponsors, you know, RJ Grondon and the Rizbeer brothers are doing that big development that their father sponsored me. Mm. He was a very nice guy. He's he loved racing, he loved cars and he, he was a big Ford man, but uh that's where it all started really. It was you know, you're known as a car owner. I mean, you're in multiple Hall of Fames as a result of, you know, the fact that your cars went stupid fast for yeah. so, so long. But you were also a driver. There, You know, there was the point where you said, I'm not interested in it. But yet there was a point where you were interested in it. How did you become a driver and why did you become a driver? Well, Sonny Honeywell, my, one of my sisters was uh, married to Sonny and he, he was a Ford man. He says, well, I'm going to build you a race car. You want to drive it? It was a uh, 67 Ford Fairlane with a 289 in it. And I said, yeah, we'll work on it and drive it. He had a garage, went down there, worked on it, and that was uh, 1976. So you had owned cars. You were already a car owner. Well, he owned that car. Okay. He owned that one. I owned the, I owned the 57 Chevy that Dave started. In That's the, what I'm saying. So in 72. Yeah, you guys I was. already had your team, but yet he comes to you and says, I want you to drive my car. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know how the, how does that even happen? It just seems kind of <laughs> well, cuz I think he was dating my, you know, dating my sister back then and mm. you know, he knew I was I went to races all the time even back then, you know, even later on and, and uh he took an interest to it and we got along good and Do you remember your first race? Uh kind of. I thought I was going like a son of a bitch, but everybody passed me and <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was a little different. It's a lot different than people think because I was on yeah. the clay then. Yeah, oh boy. It was all, you know, oil coming up through your fo- uh, floor pans and all that stuff. And How dirty would you be at the end of the night? Dirty, real dirty. Hmm. Yeah. But you're a farmer, so like yeah. maybe you showed up that way. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> when I first started driving that, I wasn't, I didn't, I hadn't known the farm because I was only, uh, I was a uh, senior in high school when, oh, okay. I, when I drove the 19. So that was 76 when I graduated. I was senior then. And uh, that's when I got tied up with Sonny. Then after that, when Sonny went the other way, and Mike Johnson was a Daredevils champion for three years, and he ended up selling me his, uh, uh, I guess they called them Limited's back then, Limited Sportsman's. 
So the Daredevil division was probably the modern, the not precursor at all because there was a big gap, but it would be the the modern day equivalent would be a Wildcat. Wildcat, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So an entry yeah. level division because Beach Ridge for the for the you know the first. 15 years was just a class and then they had a b class, b class and, yep. and they eventually had a c class yep. so then the daredevils come along why don't they just call them the d class i don't know they had put a name with it i think yeah you know? calvin yeah. reynolds owned the track at that point i believe yeah yeah, yeah calvin yeah he used to flag do it i like calvin we get mm. along good together yep. so you were part of the regime change from uh jb mcconnell to to calvin reynolds yeah, yeah. so yeah, exactly what, i remember jb yeah what was that what was jb mcconnell like as an owner well, I was kind of young back then, so I really didn't mm. have that connection with JB. I'd go up there because a buddy of his was Stan Cody. He raced way back in the day, and when I was working for Scarborough Public Works, we'd go up to Beach Ridge and hang out and have a coffee. JB and him were good, real good friends, so I got to know him that way. Mm. And Pete McConnell, I always followed Pete in racing and stuff, and that was his his dad. Yeah. So. so then Calvin comes along. Um do you remember if the track changed much or was there a lot of talk about how the track isn't run like it used to run? No, know? I don't think so. Uh-huh. Cause we had association back then and I don't think there was that much changes between JB and McConnell. And- so it was kind of a plug and play situation where he came in, had experience with, you know, the community and the track and he was very, very invested in racing and pretty much carried uh, took what J.B. McConnell did and just kept it going. Right, kept it going. And yeah. Calvin was a hell of a racer. You know, he won a lot of races. Hmm. He had that hole to the roof, and I remember him coming out and putting the flag up through there. And it, I, you know, I had a great childhood as far as racing goes. Yeah, I really you did it. Really had the golden age. Yeah, I yeah. really had that golden age with them guys. I just loved watching. You know, Homer Drew would put on a show, and I uh, just. What's one thing that you remember Homer Drew doing in a race car that really impressed you? Oh, when he'd win, he'd win the A class and go out and win a B class. And he'd, he might jump in the C class car, too. You know, he'd race all three of them, you know. Yeah. As far as one race, you know, I remember the, the vice grip deal and all that stuff. But What is the vice grip deal? Well, he lost, he broke the steering wheel one night, and uh, they couldn't fix it. It was after the heat race and stuff. So he had to put a pair of vice grips on the shaft so he could steer it. And, and, and he ended up winning with a pair of vice grips on there. <laughs> With that's a amazing. pair of vice grips. That is amazing. Oh, that is wicked. I mean, the guy was dangerous, the, man. Oh, it, it was dangerous, but you know, you wouldn't be able to do it today. But I mean, no. the guy had arms. Because the tech on guy him. might say something about well, it. Well, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Would you let that? What if somebody came through your tech pad and was like, "Hey, uh, I had a problem in the heat, but I I have a solution. It's vice grips." No, put it on the trailer. <laughs> I mean, in today's generation, right. you, it, there's so much safety that goes on and. Right. That really safety is number one. When you come down through tech, that's what we're looking for yeah. is safety. Make sure you got a good seat, a good helmet. It's really, really very key with these kids today. None of the things you had when you were racing that Daredevil class. No, I had an open face helmet and, uh, you know, bucket seat. Out of, could have been out of a, a Jeep Wrangler. You know what I mean? It was just. Tell me about those, uh, about those racing days because they didn't last very long. As far as your racing, oh no, no, my race it didn't last long, really. No, I uh, I raced up in '77 when I bought that car off Mike Johnson. He just fin- won the championship in '76. Mm. He pulled it off the track, sold it to me for eight hundred dollars. I loaded it right on my trail that day, race ready, race ready, eight hundred dollars right after a feature win in '76. Wow! And I raced it one race in '77. 
I tried it. You know, it looks easy when you go out there and watch somebody like Mike Johnson drive. Oh, I can do that. Yeah, but, he's smooth. Oh, yeah, he was smooth, yeah. He was a day learner at the beach ridge. Yeah, he'd give you two laps to pick a groove. If not, he'd pick it for you. <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, I lasted I lasted one race in 77. I said, I ain't got feel for this. And I was starting my business and stuff. Didn't mm. want to really get hurt. And I put him in it, and uh, I drove the first. He missed one race, but back then we had 22, probably 24 races, sometimes 30. But he ended up winning the championship for That was our first championship together in 77. You're not doing this alone. Who's on your crew um, helping Mike Johnson win these races? Well, I had my neighbor next door was Robbie Moulton. He was my key man. He was my tire man. Chief Moulton? Chief Moulton. I don't okay. say that because he'd come to races and he'd never right. – he was a per, he had the great personality, but, but, but to be a chief of police, yeah. he'd never show it or nothing. No, he's an incredible guy. You know, what's funny is I knew him from the racetrack. Right. Right? Right. And then when I would see him, you know, just in civilian life, like it just – you know, he just, it was weird. The only reason yeah. why I knew he was a police officer is because he had a uniform on. Right. Any other right. time you'd see him, he'd just be a regular guy he with was, his regular air. Well, yeah. he still is. You know, he but, still is. He, yeah. he, he still, you know, he just retired a year ago. He's enjoying his life, him and mm-hmm. Susan up on the lake. But he was that guy that, you know, he'd have a, you know, pop with us after the races and stuff. And yeah. Just a nice, natural guy. Yeah. And I had my I had my brother, Ricky. He was a, he was my really crew chief. He's the one that called the shots and stuff. Because, mm. uh, he put a lot of effort in it. He'd work on it during the week and stuff. And, and what is the age gap between you and Ricky? Uh, three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three years. I was the youngest out of seven. Five sisters and one brother. Yeah. What was that like? I enjoyed it. I was the baby of the family. Yeah, so you know, they, I, they looked right after oh, you. Oh, they huh? took right, and they still do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoyed yeah. it. I, so you had your brother. You had uh, you had Robbie Moulton. I won't call him chief. And yeah. uh, And who else? Uh, I had back then. I had a lot of guys. You know, I had the Ricky Meserve, Dougie Meserve, mm. uh, Rusty Shorey, Scotty McDonald. I'd probably know him. I'm gonna forget somebody, but Skip okay. Baker. He he was on there for a long time. So you you obviously weren't doing it alone. I guess it was my no no. Point. We had we had a great guy. We called, called it the Garden Gang because I mm. still was farming then. So we we were called the Garden Gang. Tell me what your day was like between running the farm and and racing and trying to maintain uh, a winning race car with you know because you, you're working at night on the race car. Yeah yeah. What was that schedule? We like? we worked on it Tuesdays and Thursday nights, but farming you know, I'd farm all day and stuff, and I'd do most of my spray crops at night. So. When I got done spraying, we'd go down to the race shop. I'd go down. The boys would already be there. They'd get there around 6. And everybody everybody showed up. I did. I had a dedicated crew. We had a mm. good crew. You know, in anything that people do today, and I say it to this day, if you're going to be successful, you've got to have good people around you. And I always had good people around me. Right. Very, very happy. You had to because you're racing against Rick Zemla. You're racing against Bob Randall. You yep. have Mike Johnson. You got Bob Gahan in there. Yep. You got Bobby Bob Gahan. Harrison. Yeah, Bobby Harrison. Tell me Mike about Mike Maeda. Mike Maeda. Randall was, was a big competition. You know, between Randall, Maeda, and Johnson. I mean, they it was either one of them. But there was other good drivers out there. You know, Paul Johnson did a good job. Bob Reynolds. Bob Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby. You know, Bob. Bob raced at Beach Ridge for a while before he went to Oxford and stuff. But. Uh, it, it, that them three right there, those are the ones that beat at, at the time. Then when them guys left, then it was Bab and Billadoo. Hmm. Then later on in the years, I took a few years off from that, and then I got back involved with uh, 
Mike Rowe, you know, in mm. 2009. Which we're going to get to a little bit later on. In yeah. the mid-80s, um, you know, you guys were achieving all this and everything, and you you guys have the setup. Randall has the setup. Zemla does. Uh, Bob Harrison. And then they're going to turn Beechridge into asphalt. Now, is this something, is this a bomb that was dropped on people the fall before the 1986 season? Or was this something that they had been talking about for a few years? Uh, I think Ralph was, he really wasn't, because I was farming then, and, and I was the last guy to make laps around Beechridge on the clay with a tractor and a rototiller. I rototilled that whole thing right up. It come out really nice. So you dug up Beechridge? I, well, I, I dug it up with a rototiller, yes. Wow. And it came out real smooth and everything. It was something Ralph was going to try. Then he put a lot of work into it after that. After that, that week we rototilled it. It took two or three weeks to do it. You know, it right. st- st- stove the hell out of my rototiller, but it was a eight foot wide rototiller. As I say, it wasn't big, the big kind. Machine. No, yeah, no, it wasn't yeah. one. You <laughs> I could just picture you doing no, that. No, it, it, it was huge. Yeah, but once he we rototilled it up, and geez, it looked pretty good and stuff. I thought it was going to be a you know pretty good for the next year. So they didn't. So the original plan wasn't to pave the track. It was just to resurface it with after digging it up i'm sorry I'm, I'm not following yeah i mean it was still clay in that what year was it 80? 95 1985 85 yeah well 84 he tried to make it better because it, it really was a lot of pot, potholes and stuff mm. i mean he had to do something with it and that's why he called me up one if i'd wrote it till it and we did we wrote it till the shit out of it you know? and what would that do that would just eventually it, it, smooth it out yeah smooth it up and break it all up then he put you know put the oil to it or whatever he was putting on it tire or whatever he was doing it and then he'd roll it roll it and roll it it was it was a good month month project doing that and evidently it didn't come out the way he wanted it i'd say because they dug it up that year we never really get the race on it after that so i guess it was a fairly sudden i I think so i think it was i yeah i mean he had the maters were racing too and they had all kinds of equipment and Mm. i remember the first time they put the dozer to it yeah what was the what was the temperature? Uh, what was everybody talking about when all of a sudden, hey, Beechridge is going to be, yeah, it's been a great dirt track, but now it's going to be asphalt. Yeah, I think back then people were looking towards forward for the asphalt. But today, hmm. you know, after the years have gone by, oh, we wish it, we wish it was still dirt. Yeah, no. But, but no, I think I think they made the right decision. Yeah. It's, it's the original track from them. They never repaved it. So, yeah, no, I mean, it had an incredible run. Yeah, it had um, a great run. Yeah, but you as a race team, just like all the other race teams, were so used to having your setup for a clay track. Yeah, but I was just getting in it in the in the late eighties, yeah, uh, mid eighties, whatever it yeah, changed. I only had it two or three years, but I still had steel bodies. I had nice looking cars, but I learned a lot in, in, in three or four years that this ain't the way to go. You know, it's all about weight. And Mayetta was running a fiberglass body, and Gahan would come in with half a body, and. You know, it was all about the weight and all that stuff. So we we were, we were learning quite. A, we struggled the first two or three years in the pro stocks. What was the uh, the biggest lesson that you learned? Uh, keeping up with the times and keeping up with the competition. Mm. Yeah, you know, I struggled when I first started, like everybody else does today. You know, I mean, it's just had something to jump in and go. And Mike Mayetta was winning all the features, and Bobby Gahan was winning a lot, and and Randall. You know, they were winning before my team really took off mike johnson and stuff would you ever consult these guys or oh they... yeah we hung around all the time we always had beers after the races and stuff yeah. we'd all talk about stuff and you could see what they were doing and see what you know what you thought was why did it take you so thing. long to to jump on their train uh 
I I always like the steel body cars, the looks of them. Yeah, you know, it. They just you're stubborn. Yeah, I was stubborn. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. A, just come yeah. out and say it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Now, once I wanted to go faster, you got to you got to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and this is, of course, you had um, you know, some sponsors. You had Grondin. Was this Grondin? I had Grondin back then, yeah. yeah. I had Grondin when I first started out because Ricky Meserve, mm-hmm. yeah, he worked for Grondin. He got that deal. And, yeah. So right around this time, uh, the American-Canadian Tour starts racing at Beechridge. That first year with 86 where they had that steel-bodied race, and then they had the fiberglass body starting in 1987. Uh, the big coming-out race was, I mean, for Beechridge regulars. Uh, before we get into some of the specifics of that, what was it like? Because nowadays, when they have a tour, it's almost like the tour relies on the local draw to supplement the field because they don't have the local Saturday night guys. Yeah, they don't have twenty, thirty guys no, following exactly. the tour like they yeah. used to. It's just a different yeah. way to do business. Yeah. Um, but it was unheard of to have seven or eight people in the field of a tour race and have the tour drivers beat the regulars, like which Bob Randall did. But no one knew that you guys could do that first. You're right. the trailblazers on that. Right. When you heard American Canadian Tour was coming and you were going to be able to be a part of that race as your race team, what's going through your mind? Oh, I just, I loved it. I couldn't wait. We really loved the competition. Not like the kids today. When someone comes from a different track today, these are all worried about, you know, what's he got? How can he can do this? But we, you know, we had uh, Robbie Crouch, uh, trying to think. John of, Paul Cabana. Yeah, Cabana. Jamie Obie, Randy McDonald. Yeah, yeah. You know, all those guys. All of them. Russ Erlin. Right. We knew we could be competitive with them because, you know, they had the bigger motors and all that stuff. But Beatridge was in a motor track. Right. You know, you go up there and do a. But did they know that? I don't think they did it. Junior Hanley, you know, we could race with Junior Hanley. You know what I mean? Right. It was he was a big, big, big shoe back then, and still he had a yeah, great I mean. career. But we loved it when them guys came. They'd probably come twice, three times a year. Mm-hmm. And we and Randall won the first one for a Saturday night car. We ended up winning a one fifty, and we won a two hundred lapper for act. So, I, so before and, you won that race, how close were you to winning? Uh because I think you ran pretty well. Like, Maeta ran well, you yeah. ran well, Randall ran yeah, well. Yeah, we started taking off in the early 90s. Uh, well, we won a championship in 89. That was a fiberglass body. Mm-hmm. That was a Grand Prix body, fiberglass. Is it the dark green car? Dark green, yeah. Why'd yep. you go from uh, dark green to white eventually? Oh, just to break it up a little bit. You know, I had a black car once, too, because Polar had black too and they wanted a black car so hmm. I, did, I didn't race that much Just that was just like kind of an open car and I ended up selling it to a Canadian from the tour but uh, do you remember who? no I don't no 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 I don't okay yeah, I don't <laughs> <laughs> no that's alright uh, so yeah you win the you know you win that big beach ridge race um, easy to say that's the biggest win that oh yeah yeah and the crowd was probably completely on your side oh yeah yeah, everyone. Randall won. I don't think Mike may have ever won an act race. I think Glenn, Glenn won one. did. Bobby yeah. Libby, he had that 34, and that was always snout and sounded good. I mean, he he. I think he ended up winning one, too. Mm-hmm. And, and us, you know, we happened to win two. But they raced there for, you know, five or six years. You know, yeah. the, the tour did. And we loved it when they came. It was good racing. The fans loved it. Yeah. But back then, they see they want you know everybody loved it and all this, but it was no no uh, social media, so you you couldn't see anything on like it is today. You know, right. did you ever think of uh, running the tour? Like you get that taste of success, 
You're like, I can beat these guys. We can do this. Um, did you ever think of running the full American Canadian tour? No, because I, I farmed. You know, mm. I, I, I had a job that I had to be there every day. So family continues to be the biggest thing front and center. We talk a lot about yeah. racing. Yeah. We talk a lot about, um, you know, championships like uh, 1992 Pro Stock. Yeah. 1994, 1995, you know, that's when things are really, really taken off for the race team. Yes. But it's not the only race team that you have because right around that time in the early to mid-90s, you start getting involved with Southern Maine Karting and uh, your son Jason and uh, Mike, they take off. and, And so you're racing not only on Friday nights. Right. You're on Saturday nights. Right. And you're farming. <laughs> yeah. What else yeah. are you doing? Do you have any time? No, I didn't have no time. That was about it. I, I had, thought you coached Little League. Oh, I do that, too. I did that, too. <laughs> yeah. Both both boys, they brought up Little League. So that was six yeah. years of Little League. Yeah. Yeah. I know, we did that, too. And there was a lot. Anything in sports. I played basketball. The both boys did. And I coached basketball. Uh, they they played soccer and all that stuff. They played sports everywhere. We were going somewhere every night, just about, it seemed like. Yeah. And Joe and Joe and Donna Pastore started that uh, uh, main Southern Maine Southern Maine Cotty. Yeah. I mean, we, we followed them everywhere. They were they were a big part of bringing these kids that are out there today. To- How influential do you believe the Pastore family was at that time? When you look ahead to to the next twenty five thirty years, if that program that they started in the 90s if that wasn't there how where do you think racing in southern maine would be you think a lot of those people would have found rides eventually or did they introduce a lot of people to racing no they very much introduced a lot of people and you know once the fathers get a itch for it and love the competition and stuff Mm. you know then they hopefully they'll move up to the to the next division. So which, what was it like being not only coach Dick Fowler, it was being dad Dick Fowler. All of a sudden, your boys are racing. Yeah. Uh, that's different than your friend Mike Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Out there it, it was very different. I, you know, I was I was digging holes in the ground a lot. Tell know? me, yeah, tell me about those early go-kart days. Oh, the early go-kart days, yeah. they, they, were, they were real fun. I mean, we had really? a lot of, yeah, real, uh, I really enjoyed the go-karts. Yeah. And being around, because we traveled down the states, out of state and stuff, and. There's one Sugar, race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're about to talk about yeah, the same thing. The yeah. 1996 Sugar Hill, or excuse me, Coca-Cola 100 yeah. with your son Jason racing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you guys are known in Maine, but then you go to New Hampshire. And for those, like, this is a very specific audience that we're, we're speaking to, um, are speaking to directly right now, because a lot of people listen to this podcast and like, yeah. why are they talking about go-karts? Yeah. Yeah. But- those that were there know that you guys were really dominant and the past stories were in go-karts. And then you come over to Sugar Hill, which is a mini sprint, modified go-kart special track. Massachusetts guys everywhere, all over. And people, I mean, Sugar Hill doesn't get enough credit for, I think, fostering a number of, uh, you know, stars in, in their own right. Guys like Andy Sice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, came from there as well. Um you know, Jason wins that 1996 Coca-Cola 100, which is still on DVD. I have it, and it's yeah. amazing to watch, boy. Yeah. I mean, that, he was a quick learner. Yeah, he was a real quick learner. He really had the act for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He just he picked it up. He loved working on it. You know, he'd work on it more five nights a week in the, in the, in the go-kart shop. He'd be down there instead of, you know, paying attention to school, more or less, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but he'd be down there, and 
Mikey be out playing in the infield with Joey Pastore playing football, but yeah, Mikey would say, I mean, Jace would say, get over here and work on your car. Yeah, but now they they were two different boys. There's, there's no question about it. What do you remember about that? Do you remember anything at all about that Sugar Hill experience where you won that big race? Because that was a big, big go kart deal back then. Yeah, it was. It it was real good. We had Walt Diem on and uh, Mike Mike Coons helped Jason. I remember him. Yeah, he was a nice guy. Yeah. So they, uh, it, it was it was unbelievable. I didn't think we'd have a have a chance to win that. Mm. That morning, before that race, we're getting it ready and getting it all lined up, getting the chain, all that, and take it down off the the stand. And the and the there's a truck backs up to get to pump the tanks, mm. pump the potty holes. Runs right over the right rear of the go kart. Oh boy! Oh, we had we bent the axle and all that stuff. So. It was a fire drill for a couple hours, you know. Uh, Dearborn, he had he had all the parts and stuff. We had yeah. to change all that and get it all ready. And it was just one of them days. Everything come together. I got lost going there to Sugar Hill. Uh, and the boys thought they knew where it was, but yeah, you make took, that big left hand turn. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I used to work there. So yeah, yeah we took uh, yeah. took the wrong turn, and we were about an hour late, and then everything just come together, you know. Right. But uh, Jason doesn't stay in go-karts very long. No. He goes right to stock cars. Yeah, right to stock cars, yes. What made you think that he was ready for that jump? Well, just his ability, his ability that he had. Hmm. I, I mean, people sometimes stay in go, uh, go-karts too long. You know, you get some, maybe get some bad habits if you stay in too long. But uh, he got out at the, at the right age. And How old was he when he moved up into Super Sportsman? Uh, 16. Yeah, 16 years old. So as old. young as, I mean, that sounds old today. Yeah, I know right? it does. Yes, it does. But yeah, at some the of these time, kids. Yeah, yeah, at the time, Jason is competing against, um, you know, the likes of drivers that are twice his age that have been yeah. racing as long as yeah. he's been alive. How yeah. was he received? Uh, I don't know because, you know, we had my you know, last name and some people just don't like winners. Mm. Uh, they think you spend all this money and stuff. and But he held his own, I mean. Mm. Well, I think he more than held his yeah. own. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the 1998, 1999 years. Yeah, 1998 since first when he first got into sports series, they called mm. it back then. You know, race with Wayne Poland, Greg Peters, uh, Ryan Shepard, yeah. Kevin Kimball. You know, it was a good field of cars, really. Uh, it was a good it was a good stepping stone for the next division, the Pro Stocks. Was that always the goal? Yes. For him? Yeah. Did he have any, did you as a family have any aspirations for him to do anything above local racing? Or was family always going to be uh, the It thing? was going to be family because of the, the business and hmm. you know, owning your own business. It was a seven-day-a-week business. We were open for seven days, you know, yeah. Saturdays and Sundays. Because I know he had an uncanny ability, and I always wanted to know if he had any aspirations to do something different above uh, Beach Ridge Week. Well, I think he probably wanted to, but, you know, mm. just, it, you know, it takes money to, right. to move up to that next step. Well, in 1999, you get that championship. Yeah, his first championship, yeah. Let's talk about that for yeah. for a second. That year, what yeah. that was like. I mean, he had a great year. You know, he won several features. He won the 100 lap. Uh, you know, we, uh, I don't know how many exactly he won, but it was mm. good competition between him and Ryan Shepard, Kevin Kimball. Uh, Do you remember anything about the anything about let's just say that that big one hundred lap race? Yeah, I do. He had a tight. We were running about five, fifth or sixth at the time. We couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't go anywhere. 
and they had a caution and uh, Ryan Shepard was blowing the field away and Ryan to this day I think doesn't know how Jason come from the back to get it but <laughs> back, right. back, we brought him in the pit and, it, and the left rear had like 8 pounds in it we started out with 16 so well, we got a flat tire so we put a new left rear on mm-hmm. back then you just you know you get a flat tire put any tire on we put a tire on he started at the tail end and and how big was the field? Back then, it was probably, I'm going to say, about 16. Okay. So good yeah, not a good Not a great field, but a good field. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, a few guys might have wrecked that night. I can't remember. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad of a wreck fast, but it was foggy, and mm. it was one of them nights that if you don't get this thing in in the next 10 laps, we're going to call this race. So <laughs> yeah. It's lucky he didn't have a caution after that, come from the back to the front. Did he ever uh, seek your advice specifically on on just things with the race car? Oh, yeah, but he he got the, the point that he was ahead of me, mm. you know, as far as the knowledge of the race car. Was he learning from other people? Yeah, other people, with? plus his own, you know, you know, looking at magazines and so talking was, to people. He was studious like that. Yeah, he was, he was. In stage number two, we'll expand on Jason's racing. Now, Jason, uh, you know, we're actually a few decades removed from his driving days, which blows my mind. Uh, Full disclosure, Jason was a friend. I still think of him quite often. And, And Dad gets into some of his proudest moments as a human being on this earth. Now, Dickie's most recent position was head of tech at Beechridge Motor Speedway, working extremely close with track CEO Andy Cusack, a lot of people thought that Dickie knew, and the answer is no. Everything, everyone was caught by surprise. That certainly has been documented in the podcast, but what is Dickie's side of the story? Because I thought he played me for the last two months, you know, having those meetings with the lower divisions and wasting my time, you know, wasting their time for a month after the this all happened. I think people thought I knew it, you know, to have those meetings and stuff on that Saturday morning. Before. And then you feel like the bad guy. I felt like a bad guy. I really did. I, I, fe- I, felt, I felt sick. And even to this day, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. That's all I can think about when I'm, someone says Beatridge or something. That Why did it have to be like that? You know, why did he have to do it that way? That's next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. My name's Andy Austin. Thank you for the support.